This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. text that we have before us today is Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Uh, This is where John the Baptist is beheaded. And so this is the word of God. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. You'll see there's an exclamation mark there. Raised from the dead, like this dude has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and uh, and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. Verse 25, at once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Your mouth can get you into trouble. Your mouth can get you into trouble. It's fair, I think, to presume that most of us here can testify to this as an actual factual. I mean, you ain't got to say amen or like wave your hand or anything, but I'm just saying, I think that we all can testify to this as being something that is real. 
It's easy, is it not, for loosely secured opinions of ours to be spilled all over the place, leaving our lips escorted by unhelpful tones, gestures, or glares. A little side-eye or stink face has been known to go a long way in silent communication, whether rightly or wrongly. However, should we today identify honesty as the first chapter in the Book of Wisdom, as Thomas Jefferson once opined, then we will confess, as we should, that every so often, simply, we have majored in saying the wrong things. Expletives. Been there, done that, right? I mean, maybe it's just me, I can confess that. Been there, done that, yes. And we all know people who are still there regardless of age. I mean, what a missional setback it could be if, say, for example, on some Christian university's campus, one could readily hear boisterous uproars of students dispersing language that prohibits them being all that they could be, that, that is representative of, of language that's beneath their dignity, and even though their peer group values it so much. How, how, how much of a miss would that be? Let me offer us just two regulatory reminders. The tongue has the power of life, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We on the same page? That's a question, y'all. We on the same page? Praise the Lord. Now, I know cursing may not be your particular cup of tea. Instead, it may be that lewd or arrogant or hostile words uh, have become your playmates. They are easier to access, of course, when tempers run hot or when we're caught trying to be funnier than we are holy. And then, too, you know, misinformation, even to the level of institutionalized, professionalized fake news, is fashionable nowadays. So it could be that perhaps in a regrettable moment of immaturity, you let fly information that is false or cruel or, and I, I can't stress this enough, none of your nosy, rosy business. The case that I'm making is simply that we have empirical data a reoccurring longitudinal study of consistent variables maneuvered in ordinary life which compels an acknowledgement that our words can land us in hot water. And yet for Christians, there's much more to the story. Retired pastor, professor, and Bible commentator R. Kent Hughes has written this, quote, if you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to the things that the uncommitted heart will never experience." End quote. Now this may be a hard pill to swallow, but it remains true. If you adhere to the letter and spirit of the relational movement that we know to be Christianity. If 
You invite Jesus to be your only comfort in life and death, that you are not your own but belong to him in life, in death. He is, he is the, 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 the salvation for your soul. Body and soul, you belong to him. If you determine with the Spirit's help to live in such a way that upholds Scripture as the fully reliable and trustworthy standard for Christian faith and life, then, then your mouth will get you into trouble some of the time. Although, for all of the right reasons, you'll notice that the conjunction that I used, if, was on purpose. It's used on purpose because you being a Christian is not given. It, it obliges a response from you. God has chosen you. Yes, the question is, have you chosen God? Some will. Some won't. And so it goes until the trumpets sound and Jesus returns one day, soon and very soon. So journey with me. Just come along on this this ride into the Markan retelling of John the Baptist's death. As it is in, in all gospel accounts, in Mark 6, 1 through 13, we learn about Jesus' ministry with his disciples in tow. He preaches repentance. He's evicting impure spirits. He's healing a lot of people. He performs miracles, and he voices to his followers that they should not push themselves on those who do not welcome them and who just don't want to listen. He said instead to leave that place and shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against these folks. By this time, though, the, the word has gotten out about this, this brother named Jesus from the podunk ghetto of Nazareth. I mean, what good can come from Nazareth, it seems people thought. Some, jealous of Jesus, thought him to be an opportunistic fraud. Or else they saw him as a carpenter, confused about his proper socioeconomic placeholder in society. Especially since he, he taught and healed with just matchless authority, the fear of this misalignment was that it could cause trouble for the powers that be. And that trouble might result in everyone losing everything. We read in Mark 6, verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Ah, the streets were talking 2,000 years ago. But there was confusion as to if Jesus was the Old Testament prophet Elijah, John the Baptist reincarnated, or something altogether different. Herod's viewpoint was clear, though. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. As far as he's concerned, this apparent resurrection was not good. He, he's troubled by this possibility. What happened was, beyond being a spiritual provocateur, John, a relative and forerunner of Jesus, had been publicly saying about Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Speaking of Herod's current wife, as a tetrarch, literally, Herod was ruler of a quarter within the Roman ascendancy. He, he governed with an iron fist that shook violently with paranoia. 
One scholar has noted about Herod that from childhood, he suffered from a profound sense of inferiority, which turned into an obsessive complex that never left him. Although not the king, Herod was a powerful junior ruler, so to say, with enormous far-reaching supremacy. So when he himself already divorced, married Herodias, who divorced his half-brother Philip, which was clearly a big no-no to Mosaic law, he took issue with this John the Baptist getting all prophetic on him. It was a political power move for this happy couple, even though everybody knew the prohibitions in Leviticus, namely Leviticus 18, 16, and Leviticus 20, 21, regarding incestuous behavior. And surely, a brother marrying his other brother's wife counts, divorce papers or not. So Herod has John locked up to relieve the irritation that he was to him, and yet spared his life because he knew him to be a righteous and holy man. John, being John, embodying God's truth for only God's approval, produced respect and fear and favor from Herod. I mean, John, you just read a little bit about him. John did not mince words, my kind of person. He, he didn't censor his work. He didn't edit or assimilate what he knew to be pleasing to God in hopes that he would win safety or money or promises of a cushy, coveted office job one day, you know, if Herod became the Roman emperor. John's consecrated or set apart or holy life spoke loudly, but his words were no less important. Verse 20 in Mark 6 reveals that when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him, imprisoned or free. It didn't matter. Constantly, every day, you going to get this work. John was giving Herod the business along with anybody who tried to usurp God's authority. He, he never let up, and, and his call to repentance led Herod to respect him and be drawn in. Unfortunately, his, his new second wife was just too through with John, and she was itching to kill him. But Herod wouldn't entertain it. He protected this audacious, wild honey and locust-eating baptizer. That is, at least until, with perfect patience, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life prevailed in Herod. At his birthday festivities, Herod permitted his wife's daughter, now his stepdaughter, to enter the male-only venue and dance for him and his crew of government, military, business, and other supporters that, that were partying in his honor. Now, I wasn't there, of course, but my imagination suspects that this was a massive shindig of epic, like, pajama jammy jam proportions. I mean, these, these men at their provincial ruler's behest came to get down with the get down. They, they came to let loose and it would not be a good move. 
Whatever, whatever the rhythmic presentation's intention offered by the daughter of Herodias, the Bible gives just one result. Herod was aroused sexually. You might say that he was not only aroused, but Herod was pleased that he was aroused. Yes, by his stepdaughter. Clearly, this, this is beyond sad or creepy or even some description of testosterone-laced ickiness. The word that comes to mind for me is detestable. You want to say that with me? Detestable. One more time, detestable. And just three for the Trinity, detestable. <laughs> detestable though it is, our westernized minds must recognize that, that there were no campaigns during this time period against the idea of men, especially powerful men and even some women, treating women like virtually uh, slave-like uh, like objects of exploitation in ways that are incomprehensible to the, the 2019 North American privileges that we all enjoy, despite the need for further progress, Herod's behavior easily could have been worse. And not just worse, but much worse. And at its worst, in his day, it still would have been accepted. In verse 22, Herod only adds to the unfolding soap opera drama when as a reward for services rendered, he offers his stepdaughter, who may have been in her middle teenage years, anything she desires. He, he doubles down on the near limitless generosity that he's willing to display. No doubt he's trying to show out for his homeboys by, by making an official oath that verse 23, whatever you ask, up to half of my kingdom, you, you can just have it. Viewed by some as an old world antique femme fatale, much like Jezebel, it's then that Herodias strikes. She's been waiting in the corner and she's like, oh, oh, it's about to happen now. Herodias answers her daughter's inquiry about what she should do, what she should ask for very quickly, the head of John the Baptist. And that's what she wants because Herod isn't about to, to look soft in front of his his crew, his clique, on, on his birthday, no less. I mean, he's partying, he's trying to floss, he's trying to ball. He, he wants to show how cool and controlled and affluent he is. And so the prophet, whom he, he respects him, and he fears him in a certain sense, but he's also annoyed by him, that prophet now must be dispatched like a dog whose time in the pound has come to an end. So it is, a young lady is abused by her stepfather, a mother capitalizes on that abuse for her own wicked agenda, a vile, power-crazed man saves face, and a messenger of God is no more, largely because he could not keep quiet. As a Christian, you're required by the Bible and the Holy Spirit's prompting to say what needs to be said. And in case you're wondering, there's no promise that this obedience will feel good, although it will be for your good and for the glory of God who's gifted you life. Oftentimes, but not always, saying 
is the precursor to doing what is right in the eyes of God. So consider yourself forewarned this Monday morning, obediently opening your mouth will not conclude favorably on this side of heaven, heaven every single time because we don't live in some computer-generated orb of pixie dust and make-believe avatars and anonymity. No, this habitat is rife with rulers and authorities and powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil that are hell-bent to be expressed through brokenness. That brokenness is manifested in this broken world because it's full of broken people. Those broken people are you and me. And only Jesus can make it whole again. So that all hearts and minds are clear as I wrap this up and we are on one accord, let me be really frank. The Bible does not encourage Christians to argue with everyone about everything. Amen, somebody. Arguing with everybody about everything says more about you than it ever will say about them. Did you hear me? On, on the other hand, now, we, we, we should not dim or conceal our light in Christ in order to avoid opposition, as if Christ died that we would win a popularity contest in his name. The challenge then before us is to be rooted in the scriptures, not like this book study, not in your feelings, not in some other kind of like mindfulness. The idea is to be rooted in scriptures, committed to sober-minded responses to God, being willing as it is necessary to take up your cross. That's, that's really all I'm trying to say. You're, you're not responsible for your friend's relationship with God or lack thereof. You, you ain't responsible for your parents' relationship or lack thereof with God. It's not your job to post or text about everything under the sun. There are times when, when Christians just really need to sit down, be humble, listen well, and pray. Even so, what offends God should offend you. What breaks God's heart should break yours. And sometimes you need to push past the worry that you have about your beloved reputation and say what needs to be said in Jesus' name in love. It's been said that if you've made up your mind that you are going to avoid suffering, the gospel is not going to reach very deep in you. I'll say that again. It has been said, if you have just, you just like, look, this is where I'm at. I've made up my mind that I'm going to avoid all suffering. The gospel is not going to reach very deep in your life. As part of this institution's mission statement reads, we desire to produce graduates with thoroughly Christian minds. Being used by God always involves a fundamental degree of risk, for if not, what would be the purpose of faith? Do not, I repeat, do not, help me out, repeat it with me, do not, 
Do not go around trying to be a modern mini-me of John the Baptist. So don't you leave here and be like, yeah, that's James. He was talking about I'm supposed to be John. No. Do not leave here trying to be a modern mini-me of John the Baptist. What I want you to do, what God wants you to do is be yourself unapologetically committed to the same God whom John the Baptist was beheaded for. Amen, somebody. Go in peace. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.